Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, old-time crime gal fans and listeners. This is Melissa. I am solo again this week. I want to thank you all for tuning in. It is Thursday. Going back to our roots here and doing kind of an older story. This one is um is complex and interesting. And I um, want to welcome all the new listeners that we've gained in the last couple of weeks since I'm um, covering Gabby's case, which is still ongoing. Um, if you haven't caught up on that one, um, there's news still coming out every day. But um, I want to talk about a little different case today. So we're going to go to Northern Virginia in Langley. And those of you who are not familiar, Langley just happens to be the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency for the United States, or the CIA. So, this particular incident happened. It was a Monday, January 25th in 1993, and it's just um, a normal day, and you have everyone going to work, rush hour traffic. Those of you who live in big cities, we know how it is, especially in, like, well, our area, like Raleigh, and, you know, it takes forever. It takes... You know, you're stop and go. It's it's chaotic. And this particular Monday, you know, people were heading to work. And, you know, Langley's CIA office is, is pretty big. They have thousands of employees. And it's a, it's a compound of like 200 odd acres. Maybe like 250. It's a really big place. And, you know, it's got guards because it's the government agency. And so you can't really just walk up to it and get in. But this particular person decided that they were going to attack the light at the turn to go into the compound. So everyone that's heading to work, you know, you have all these people that are just doing their morning commute and they're waiting to turn left at this light to go into the entrance of the compound. You know, almost all the cars had one person in them because you go to work by yourself. Um, there did happen to be a car that had two people in there, a um, newlywed couple who both worked at the CIA, and they had met there and recently gotten married. And so, you know, this car, this man just walks up and just shoots the man in the back of the head that was in the car with the the woman. And then he, you know, falls over. He slumped. He'd gotten shot. Um, so a man with a gun was approaching the traffic from the backside of the cars. And so two employees just jump out of their car and just run. They just just try to get away. Because if you think you're like a drive-through line where you've got a car in front of you, a car behind you, you're stopped. There's really nowhere you can go. So they just didn't know what else to do. They just jumped out the car and ran. Um, which probably would have been what I have done. Um, definitely fight or flight, I'm flight. Um, if it comes down to it, fight, but mostly flight. So they just jumped out their car and just ran away. And then a third employee, they could get their car out, so they just decided to, you know, lay on the gas and just get the crap out of there, which is another smart decision. So they just left. Um, but, you know, some people weren't as lucky. So they, at the red light, you know, the bullets, they're being shot at all these cars. 
He shot into his sixth car. He hit an elderly gentleman. He was 61 twice at point-blank range. And then he decided to turn around and travel back through the car. So these, you know, stopped him at the left-hand turn, worked his way up, and then he turned around and was making his way back. And then he realized that the first man that he had shot in the car with the woman was still alive. And so then he raises his gun through the windshield and finishes him off. Um, he did not, however, kill the man's wife. He could have. He looked right at her, and he just kept on going. So there was only one employee left, you know, in his car at the light, and he was probably just too terrified to even move. I mean, this probably happened very quickly. It's chaotic, you know, chaotic. You don't know what's going on. He was just frozen. And so he was, um, he was also elderly. He was 66, and he was killed instantly um, with two shots through his window at point-blank range. And so, you know, you have the wife who slumped down in the, the floorboard just waiting, you know, to see what happens. And it probably feels like forever. But after a couple of minutes, she hears a car speed away. The shooter leaves. So she jumps out of the car and she runs away to call for help. Um, and I just cannot imagine what she was going through. But by the time that she uh, gets help, the 911 switchboard is like lighting up. There's been several calls, you know, gunshots heard. You know, Fairfax County is very busy, so they send all available personnel to the crime scene. And it was apparent that, you know, this was a immediate situation that needed to be handled, like, ASAP. And so police secured the scene, and, like, choppers go up immediately to start search for the shooter. You know, eyewitnesses said that they saw him run, you know, run off on foot after he drove off. Um the CIA quickly dispatches a special forces tactical unit. I mean, cause they're there and they search the 250 acres of the compound ground. So immediately there's no waiting period. There's no, I mean, it's, it's go. They want to find this guy. They, you know, search started off immediately. It was big, but it turned up nothing. They didn't find anything, but they still, blocked off a three-mile radius surrounding the crime scene, and they blocked off, you know, the highway, anything in the surrounding area that was three miles out to make sure that the only people going in and out were emergency personnel and that they could monitor what was going on. But still, they didn't turn up anything. So, after it was all said and done, you have two people that were dead, three were critically wounded, four others escaped, and out of those four, three were women. So, the main, one of the main people in this investigation was um, Special Agent Brad Garrett, and he arrived shortly after the incident, and then he began to assess the situation. So, he determined that the victims appeared to be random, but the shooting together was a collective target against the CIA. All these people were employees. They were all waiting to turn into the compound. So the shooter was making a political statement. He just chose to act during morning rush hour traffic. Perhaps that was the only way he thought he would be heard. So after talking to the survivors, so there wasn't much to go on. So all they really had was that, you know, just a generic description it was a male, he had an olive complexion, and he had a rifle. I mean, no one could agree on, like, what vehicle he came up in, when did he leave, how tall he was, how heavy he was. 
Um, I mean, most of them were concentrating on either taking cover or running or just pure terrified to death. And sometimes your, your brain doesn't register um, observations in a precise manner where you can read it back. I mean, we've talked about this before on previous episodes where I've been through bank training episodes where my job was to remember stuff and the person beside me could not remember the same stuff I remembered. We knew what was going to happen and we still couldn't agree on what we saw. And so imagine being put in a traumatic event like that and having to call back certain details. Um, Sometimes your brain just blocks that stuff out. So they really didn't have much to go on. But um, CSI, you know, they began combing through. It was a 50-square-yard crime scene, so it was relatively small. It was at at a light, and they collected everything they could think of. They found 10 empty bullet casings, and they're cataloged. And, you know, they appeared to be fired from AK-47. And then they did find one live round. Um, So it could have just been dropped out of his hand, could have been dropped out of a bag, didn't make it into the gun barrel, what, um, or the clip, whatever the case is, they have one live round and 10 empty bullet casings. And so the live round gave them the um, observation that it was a semi-automatic weapon. There was glass that, you know, each car was collected and it was um, stored and cataloged in case it proved significant later because you have different manufacturers, you know, just German car uses this type of glass and this foreign, you know, American car uses this type of glass. So they made sure that everything was separated and cataloged and um, collected into evidence. So then they started looking at the former employees of the CIA, you know, anyone that might have a connection to any of the victims, anyone who left recently disgruntled, um, just your basic um, investigation course. But back at Fairfax County Command Center, um, a sketch artist was actually drawing up a composite of the shooter. One of the dri- the driver that sped off that was actually smart enough to drive away, or could get away, rather, um, she got a good look at him before she drove off because he did have the opportunity to shoot her as well, and he chose not to. Um, she gave him a more accurate description. So the drawing was released to the public, and a tip line was created so that calls you know, could come in, and they came in quick. They came in by the hundreds. So evidence was being looked at. Um, more closely, they noticed that on the live round, there was a latent fingerprint which was great because that gives you, you know, identity of who your suspect was. But the problem was if you've ever held any ammunition, especially have large bullets, they're, they're round. And so the fingerprint was almost like 300 and some degrees in a circle. And you can't exactly put a piece of paper over that and lift it up. Like if it was on a flat surface. So what the tech had to do was, you know, take a picture of the bullet, turn it just like a teeny tiny bit, take another picture, turn it just a teeny tiny bit, and then take all of these photos and match them up so that they had a flat picture of a fingerprint. It took over more than an hour, and that, um, that's a lot of time for lifting one fingerprint. However, the result was it, it lifted one complete fingerprint that was able to be scanned and put into the system. So this was a solid lead. This was like a who done it. This person did it. So they put it into the system. However, there were no matches. 
And so the next morning, police handed out over 3,000 flyers to commuters, you know, on the nearby highway, anybody that was out and about trying to generate some more leads. So then that night, a Virginia state trooper pulls over a vehicle that fits the description of the shooter. And so he calls for backup before he even heads up to the car, just in case this happens to be the shooter and this guy's armed with a AK-47. So this was on January 26th. So this was 36 hours after the event had happened. You know, they thought they had their guy, but once they fingerprinted him and it was determined that he was not the shooter. So they, you know, had to just stop him for whatever they stopped him for and let him go. And so without many leads, you know, Special Agent Garrett, he decided to pull all the recent gun sales involving AK-47s for the last year. So ATF agents visited several gun shops, you know, over the next few days because you can't, it's illegal to, to purchase or to have one of those guns in the city. So they had to go to the out surrounding um, country, the counties. But they found out that over the last year, 1,000 AK-47s were purchased in Northern Virginia and 600 were purchased in Maryland. So that is a lot of guns in that particular area. And so they entered um, the names of every purchase. They visited gun, gun ranges. They asked if anyone, you know, who had practiced with the AK-47, anyone who had shot an AK-47. They just had this massive list that they had to narrow down. So they decided to take the list of gun owners and narrow it down by the physical description of the shooter. So they took everyone who fit the description, everyone who was a male, everyone who was, you know, olive complexion or, you know, basically non-Caucasian at this point, anyone who, um, you know, lived in the area that had a local address. They just whittled it down and eventually they had one name. So only one person on this list fit the description, and his name was Mir Amal Kanzi. And three days before the shooting, he purchased an AK-47, and he was um, from Pakistan. He was a Pakistan immigrant, and he was reported missing by his roommate three days after the shooting. So kind of like a little coincidence there. And so at least that narrowed it down and gave them a name they had something to go on so a team of agents they were dispatched almost immediately to track him down so they go to his house of course he wasn't home but his roommate was and his roommate happened to work at the airport and he actually worked security and it's his job to check passengers for weapons you know as they go through the um detectors and stuff and so he agreed to meet with the investigators and answer all their questions at his apartment later. So, you know, they approached him when he was at work. And so they learned that he actually was flying home to Pakistan later in the week. He had a flight on Friday, but he agreed to cooperate. He's like, until I leave, I'll cooperate. So, you know, meet me at the house. I'll answer everything that you need to know. So the authorities went to his apartment to have that interview, but he wasn't there. Um, he actually had changed his travel plans to fly back on Tuesday, two days earlier, and he had, was already packing up and on his way out. So then they put the apartment on surveillance because they knew his plane was going to leave very soon. And eventually they found him home. So then they, you know, have that chat they were intended to have. 
And so he lets them in the apartment and the apartment has been like packed away. There's very little things out. There's stuff in boxes. And, you know, he agrees, search, search the apartment. You know, he's, I'm, he made it obvious his plans were to leave. I mean, he had already called the utilities office and like got them shut off. He had already let the landlord know. I mean, it was apparent that he was leaving. He was going back home. He was also from Pakistan. He was going home and he wasn't coming back. But he didn't know where his roommate was. At least that's what he was telling the FBI. So they searched the apartment. And in the back of a closet, they found a suitcase. And in the suitcase was uh, many firearms. There was a Beretta. There was there was just all these firearms. Some ammunition for an AK-47 and a bulletproof vest. Um, the roommate swears, you know, hey, that's, that's Conzie's. That's not mine. I didn't know anything about it. And then, you know, they keep searching. So, wrapped in plastic and stuffed under the couch was another weapon. And this one was the AK-47. Again, the roommate said it wasn't his. He's like, it's it's Conzie's. This is not mine. He said that he doesn't know him that well. That he only met him a few months ago, you know, and through a mutual friend. And was like, hey, I need a place to stay. Stay with me. You know, you pay X amount of money. But they were never really home at the same time. They had different work schedules. They, they weren't best buds, basically. And so he signs an agreement like, hey, I will help you out. This stuff doesn't belong to me. I don't know what's going on. And so now we're at like um, February 8th, 1993. This is two weeks after. You know, they had a suspect. Their suspect was 28-year-old Mir Amal Kanzi, and he was missing. So the roommate agrees to help. So they go through the apartment again with a fine tooth comb and they found a tan trench coat that was described as what the shooter was wearing. So when they process this coat, you know, shake it out, get all the fibers off, find out all the microscopic traces of evidence they could find, they find glass from three different car manufacturers. And then his vehicle happened to be on the curb that was pointed out by his roommate. So inside the vehicle, they can't go inside the vehicle because they don't have a search warrant. The roommate allowed them to search the apartment, but they couldn't just bust into this truck that was registered to um, Amir Kanzi. Amir Mal Kanzi. So through the window, they could see that there was a roadmap that was open to the page where the headquarters of CIA was in Langley, right in that area of Langley, Virginia. And there was also a newspaper clipping on an article about the director of the CIA. And that was just what was visible. So obviously, you know, with every, all the evidence mounting up, he had something to do with it. So the roommate was taken into custody as a material witness because obviously he had some sort of information. He may not have had anything to do with it, but he was a flight risk that he was intending to leave the country. So he was actually placed under custody. And then luck would have it since um, Conzi had applied for asylum in the United States. Immigration had a current fingerprint card. So that was immediately rushed and collected so it could be processed. And his roommate, you know, since he was in custody, he was answering more questions. He would say stuff like um, while they were watching the news, his roommate would become angry about conflicts that were going on in the Middle East. He was really upset over, you know, at the American government. And then during this process, they confirmed that the fingerprint matched the one on the live round. And so the serial number on the gun found also matched the one that he bought three days before the shooting. 
So, with all this evidence, you know, it was enough to confirm that Mir Amal Hanzi was the shooter, and a $100,000 reward was issued for information for his arrest. And so now, through canvassing the, like, Pakistani markets, they found out Hanzi visited one the day of the shooting. You know, he knew the shop owner, and he had a friend that was a travel agent. So he went and purchased a ticket for a flight back home, and the manager drove Kanzi to the airport himself that day. So now authorities know that the day of the shooting, he boarded a plane and was out of there. So now he has left the country. And so now it is a worldwide manhunt for this suspect in the shooting of all these um, CIA agents. So that we'll get to in just a minute how they tracked him down. Okay, so now we are at the point where uh, Mir Amal Khanzi has left the United States and flew back home to Pakistan. So this is, you know, 8,000 miles away. We have to continue this investigation. And so the FBI turns to the DEA to see if they have a way to get in touch with some maybe informants. Because it's extremely difficult operating, you know, in certain areas of the world. Uh, for obvious reasons, you know, the U.S. government, especially the CIA, is not well-liked in that area of Pakistan and Afghanistan for um, obvious reasons. And it's different because, you know, we don't have jurisdiction. We can't just go over there and start flashing badges and, you know, knocking down doors and asking questions. You know, things kind of have to stay a little bit on the um, the secret spy, you know, mode. We have to do things undercover. And so the DEA, you know, put their feelers out um, trying to find some, you know, informants. But in March of 1993, the State Department declared Kanzi's attack on the CIA agents an act of terrorism. And the reward was up to like $2 million. So now they're hoping some of that stuff will kind of fish out some um, informants and lead tips to where Kanzi could be located. And so, you know, Special Agent Garrett, he spent a lot of time um, practicing techniques on how to fingerprint someone who was being combative, who refused, you know, out in the field. He really honed his skills that, you know, he might be dealing with someone who's hostile. Um, there wasn't going to be a lab you could go to to take, you know, if he got a fingerprint, there wasn't going to be a lab that could analyze it. He would have to do it on the spot, you know, in, in the you know, in the desert, the field, or wherever they were at. So he, you know, had the fingerprint blown up. He studied all 10 of his uh, fingerprints. He worked with experts. He spent a lot of time making sure he could make that call visually and um, without equipment to say, yes, he's the person. Yes, you know, this was his fingerprint or, you know, no, it's not. Everything pointed to it. Um the fingerprint card they had matched, but they needed to make sure the physical fingerprints on the suspect matched. And so he boards a flight and heads for Pakistan. That's a 21-hour flight. I cannot imagine being on a plane for that long. But they visited Kanzi's brother, and it was confirmed that he visited them. He came up unannounced um, shortly after the shooting had happened. He stayed for, you know, not very long at all. And they thought it was kind of weird that he didn't have a coat because it was winter there and it was, it's cold season. 
and he only had one bag um and then he was on his way and they didn't tell him you know where he was going he just came you know visited for a bit and then just left and then it was after he left that they you know they were watching cnn actually they watched the news and found out that um Kanzi was wanted and um then he was long gone you know probably they suspected over the border into afghanistan because his family he has ties in afghanistan and so the agents returned home empty-handed you know they they thought this was their chance and they located his family and he was long gone so then three years go by and the case starts getting cold so the reward money was up to $3.5 million. That is a lot of money. And it was so much money that someone decided to start talking. So in April of 1997, a tip comes through to the U.S. consulate over in Pakistan through a credible informant. He did not feel comfortable, you know, going to the office and actually talking to the agent. So instead, he asked the agent to go outside, find a busy street corner, sit down at a cafe, and I'll call you. And so that's what that's what the agent does. He leaves the office, he goes to a cafe, and he's just sitting around, you know, reading the local newspaper, and his phone rings. And so this informant, you know, not only knows where Kanzi is located, he can guarantee that he'll be at a certain spot at a certain time and that they can arrest him there. He explains that he was on one of the groups that was kind of like protecting him. But when the reward got up to $3.5 million, he decided it was in his best interest to collect the money and hand over his friend. So that was his price. Then, you know, they needed a plan together. So the white house approved a secret arrest plan. Um, Department of State, they contacted the Pakistani leaders for permission to carry out the operation. Um, they didn't want it getting out that one of their own had left the country and come over with the intent to um, murder government officials. As much as the, they may dislike us, you know, they don't want that in the press. So they decided to let us go in and take care of the situation. So you had a special ops team that was dispatched. And they secured a room in the hotel across the street from where the informant gave so they could, you know, scout the area and, and plan their extraction or arrest, however you want to call it. They were bringing him back home to U.S. soil. And so they really couldn't visually confirm that Kanzi was in the room. So all they had to go on was the informant. So the informant gave them some infor information on how to assess it it made sure that they could excuse me i haven't had my caffeine today um to make sure they could have access to kanzi and make sure the arrest was successful and so you know the team it was loaded up they geared up bulletproof vests guns and all and then they covered themselves with um pakistani wardrobe over top of that so they you know, looked like these big bulky you know american men dressed up as pakistan they they pretty much stuck out um, so they decided to do it at 4 a.m. in the morning where there was not that many people out and they roll up to the hotel and the informant had told them the front door's unlocked. There's no guard. And, you know, they hop on out the car, they go up and they grab the door and they can't get in. The door is locked. 
So they kind of have a little, you know, freak out moment because these guys are, you know, everyone knows their duty. Everyone knows what they have to do. There's a plan. And then just, you know, it got a wrench thrown in and they can't open the door. So you have four Americans, you know, in all their gear standing outside this hotel room where they don't belong. And then all of a sudden, you know, the street starts getting a little bit busy because it's, you know, it was hot that morning and people were starting to get their, their car, their street vendor stuff ready. And it's you know, very busy. And so they're starting to kind of get noticed and get these looks. Um, so they bang on the door. They bang on the door. Finally, someone answers. So they push their way into the lobby and they secure it. And then they make their way up the stairs. And then, you know, they're praying that the informant gave them the right information, that they're at the right hotel room because he got the part about the door being unlocked wrong. And so, you know, they bang on the door and finally someone cracks it open. It gives them a way in. So they secure... They secure the room, you know, and they take this person, you know, they arrest him. He starts screaming and yelling, which is what I think anybody would do if someone busts into your room and decides to try to throw you down and handcuff you. So they gagged him so they wouldn't disturb any of the hotel guests because, again, this was a little secret operation that was trying to, you know, be low-key and couldn't make any noise. And so, you know, Special Agent Garrett talked to him and he's like, look, dude, I'll take the gag off if you don't scream. If you scream, you know. It's got to stay there. So he took it off. And he took it off. And the guy stopped screaming. And he was held down and fingerprinted. And then right there on the spot in the hotel room, Special Agent Garrett's whopping out his cards and his magnifying glass. And he's, you know, he's doing what he had trained to do. He had spent all this time trying to learn how to tell from on the spot if this was the right fingerprint. And it turned out it was a match. So... Now it became a matter of getting him out of the building, getting his team out of the building, getting him out of the country as quietly as possible without causing a stir. So they drove him to a helicopter that was waiting. They tossed him in the helicopter. The helicopter flew to a you know undisclosed location, and then he gets thrown onto a plane. He actually came back to U.S. Soul on, on the Air Force plane, Air Force One. The plane on its return trip actually was refueled in the air so it wouldn't land. That was two reasons. One, they didn't want to lose any time. Two, they didn't want to land in, the, in another country and have give Kanzi the opportunity to ask for asylum. So they didn't even, they wanted to keep him in that airspace until he came down on U.S. soil. So during his long 21-hour flight back, he confessed and he said that he wanted. I am so sorry. I could not stop yawning. Um, he wanted to attack the CIA, but it was, you know, guarded. Of course, you can't just walk up. So he decided to shoot at the workers before they could turn in to go to work. Um, he also revealed that he did not shoot any women um, as his Islam would not allow it. So he did not shoot them on purpose. All the women survived. And he was actually surprised that he was alive himself after it was over um i guess he expected that immediately you know u.s forces were going to come attack him but it was just a normal monday morning and you know langley virginia no one really knew what had happened until it was over and done with so he actually drove to the store and bought himself some lunch had a chat with his friend bought a plane ticket and was just able to casually make his way out of the country before anybody really picked up on it was him because he didn't have a great description at first, and 
you know, the fingerprint wasn't pulled and found and identified until much later. So he just was on his merry way. But he signed his confession and, you know, he was returned to Fairfax County Police where he was detained. Of course, he was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. And that was supposed to have happened in 2002. This is an older case. Um, so that is the story. I'm, I didn't hear about that. I didn't hear about it in the news. And I was old enough to, um, you know, in school we had political science and I didn't really hear about it. So I don't think the newspapers and media covered it as um, much as they cover other things. And especially now, if this happened like today, it would be all over the news 24 seven. You would, you would know everything. Um, but it's just really interesting case to me. So very complex. And I want to thank everyone for listening this week. Um, hopefully my partner Shannon will be back next week and we can get things back in the flow and I won't have to talk to myself or in the microphone and I won't be yawning all the time. Um, we'll have some commentary and some feedback to go off of each other because it's always nice to have somebody to talk to. But I'm grateful that you guys have listened. We love our listeners. If you're new to us, please continue to listen. We um, have been for, out for a while, almost a year now. So it's that's exciting. So we got to have some some kind of celebration or plan to do something special for um, our year that marks our year that we've been podcasting. And it's been so fun and different and exciting. And next week, we'll be back with more stories. Find us on our Facebook group. You can email us at oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com. I'll have all the source material listed and a link on our Facebook page as well as pictures. And we hope you have a wonderful week. And just remember, if you do the crime, it'll catch up with you in time. And then we'll talk about it. Have a great day.